rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 190 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, covering episodes 17 and 8 of season 3 of the Salkind produced Adventures of Superboy television show, which ran from 1988 until 1992. I am covering another episode that I've been greatly looking forward to since I started coverage of this show. This has got to be my second favorite two-parter of the series, Rebirth, parts 1 and 2, and the premise of this two-parter is that Superboy loses his confidence after believing he killed a man and a crime wave grips the city and he has to uh, overcome his uh, self-doubt in order to uh, continue and find out the truth of what happened to the guy that he thinks he killed. So, I mean, and I'm going to talk about this later. This is, if Road's Not Taken is my number one, this is, I don't even want to call it number two. This is like 1A. I mean, because... This could even be better than Roads Not Taken, except for a couple, except for some quibbles I have with the storytelling and the pacing, which I'll talk about uh, during my coverage of the episodes. But before I get to that, I have feedback to address. A couple of items this week. First bit is from Dave McElvenny. Dave's writing in on Man of Screen, episode 179. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Like you, I'm not a fan of Gilbert Godfrey's voice, or facial expression for that matter, so I wasn't thrilled about Nick Knack, either the episode or the character. But there was one small element that I did like. I thought having Knickknack in his first appearance refer to his previous encounter with Superboy as motivation for taking revenge on Superboy. First, it reinforces for the viewer the idea that we are seeing some of Superboy's adventures, but there are things that we haven't seen but that have happened, which makes Superboy's world a bit more real. Second, it supplies for the viewer motivation for a character that we've never seen before, so we don't have to start off with Knickknack's origin story, for which I am thankful. I was much more interested in the haunting of Andy McAllister. It's not too long after Halloween, so it's not so it's an appropriate time for a ghost story. The story of Uncle Nate's haunted house with the hidden passages, strange rooms, oddly angled doors, and the door on an open floor that opens up to a big drop all reminded me of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. The story goes that Sarah Winchester, a widow of firearms manufacturer William Winchester, was told by a medium in Boston after the death of her husband and daughter that Sarah should move from her home in New Haven, Connecticut, to the West. She did so and had a Victorian mansion built and added many odd additions such as oddly angled doors, stairs to nowhere, and a door to an upper floor that opened to empty air in a long drop, all to appease the ghosts of the many victims of the Winchester repeating rifle or other firearms that her husband made. This house is a tourist attraction to this day. I don't know if writers Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer had this house in mind, but the similarities are noteworthy. Even the cross-country move of Marshall McAllister before building this strange house. Beyond reminding me of the Winchester Mystery House, the story also provided a supernatural threat, which gives Superboy a challenge, more so than Knickknack. So, if only by comparison, it's a better episode. I am looking forward to your coverage of the last couple of episodes of Season 2, if for no other reason than to be hearing the last of Knickknack. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. 
Well, as always, Dave, uh, thank you for writing in. So good. It's glad to see, uh, you know, it seems like all of Superman fandom loves Gilbert Gottfried for the job he did as Mr. Mixie's Piddlick in the animated series in the 90s. Well, you know what? That's fine. A lot of people like that. You know, I have no, I mean, I'll talk about that performance when I get to it. But, you know, like I said, Gilbert Gottfried has always just annoyed me. But at least in the animated series, we don't have to uh, deal with his facial expressions. And yeah, I don't mind the fact that uh, we're seeing the uh, second appearance of Nick Knack without having seen the first. You know, I don't really want the origin of Nick Knack Knack either. He probably doesn't have that much of one anyway. Just a crazy kid with an annoying voice. And I do agree that the Haunting of Andy McAllister episode is much more interesting. A lot more fun, too. And I'm... And I didn't really know a ton heading into this episode about the uh, Winchester Mystery House in in San Jose, California. Dave uh, provided a link in his letter. I will uh, see about adding to the show notes. And, you know, the story does uh, sound enough like the story of the Winchester Mystery House that I think it's a pretty safe bet that writers Mike Carlin and Andy Helfer had this house in mind because the similarities are so noteworthy, even as they pointed out the cross-country trip. I mean, this is not something that the show has shied from doing, doing its take on something. So, eh, why not? And it, it is a fun story, and I think it offers a lot. So, nothing really else to add on uh, Dave's letter about this. You know, I really don't have as much to say about this episode, so that's that, I guess. I have uh, one more letter to address. This is from a new listener. Well, I don't know. It's not exactly a new listener, but a new letter writer, let's just say that. This is from Lynn SM, and the subject is Winchester Mansion. So, hello, Mike. Thank you for your Man of Screen podcast. Although I have enjoyed it for some time, I have never felt I had anything substantive to add to the conversation, so this is my first time writing to you. The house in The Haunting of Andy McAllister seems to me to be a direct homage ripoff of the real-life Winchester Mystery House, and uh, Lynn also provided a link. I'll put that in the show notes as well. The house, which was never completed, is replete with stairs leading nowhere, windows opening into other rooms, and a host of other architectural oddities. The house was built by the widow of the inventor of the Winchester rifle. Allegedly, she had it constructed in this manner to confuse the spirits of the people killed by her husband's rifle so that they wouldn't take revenge on her for their deaths. There is little evidence that the story is true, but it is widely circulated. The real reason she had it built may never be known. Stay super, Lynn. Thank you, Lynn, for uh, for your letter. Uh, welcome aboard. Uh, for however long you've been here, it's a uh, Nice to hear from a new listener once in a while. And, yeah, more good information about the the Winchester Mystery House, which, up until reading these letters, I knew nothing about because, you know, not my thing. And uh, while Lynn says uh, that the evidence, uh, that there's little evidence that the story is true, I mean, that's, I don't think that's the kind of story that would have a lot of evidence, really, you know, beyond uh, the anecdotal. I mean, some people believe in that kind of stuff, and uh, maybe she did. I'm not sure there's any uh, rational reason to build stairs to nowhere and windows uh, that open the big drops unless you're you want to get rid of some annoying relatives on Thanksgiving. You know, just have them uh, have a few beers and go upstairs and uh, walk out the third floor window. You know, if you want to do uh, something like that, you know, that's your business. But you know, as far as you know, the spirits that uh, you know, some people believe in these things, and I, like I said, I don't think there'd be any evidence of why it was built that way and what her thinking was i don't think she put down on the planning uh report weird steps to confuse ghosts you know i i think it's just something you know she said to probably said to people and it kind of becomes uh 
myth and legend from there. So, like I said, thank you, uh, Lynn, for writing in. I have uh, no other feedback this week. If you'd like to write in, manascreen at gmail.com. So now I'm going to take a uh, quick break, play a podcast promo. When I come back, Rebirth Part 1. Hang around, folks. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man-Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start off with Rebirth Part 1. Original broadcast date was February 9th, 1991. This is episode 17 of season 3, directed by Richard J. Lewis and written by Paul Diamond. That is, it is the same director and writer for both of these episodes, which I think is a huge plus. Sometimes, uh, you know, on these episodic TV shows, you have one director do one week and another director do the... uh, Second, but, you know, these particular episodes are so unique, and I'm not sure I've called these these two names before, so what that means is I need to pay better t- attention to uh, directors as uh, this is these two are episodes 9 and 10 of 11 episodes that Richard J. Lewis uh, directed, and he'll have one more after this. And However, uh, Paul Diamond is a new writer. These are the only two episodes of the series that he wrote, which doesn't surprise me at all because this episode is so much different from everything else in the series. And I'll talk about that later, too. So, guest cast includes Stuart Whitman as Jonathan Kent, Salome Jens as Martha Kent, Gregory Millar as Llewellyn, Kevin Benton as Desmond, Michael Owens as Mayall, Joseph Pinckney as Winston, Bob Sokoler as The Reporter, Robert M. Rodriguez as Hector, W. Paul Bodie as Lamont, Paul Darby as Captain Quentin, Steve Rollerson as the sergeant, Rita Rain as the woman, and Michael Ballin as Lieutenant Fulton. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. In the middle of the night, a gang of guerrilla soldiers stop a train to block a van transporting military weapons. The leader of the gang, named Winston, is approached by one of his members, Llewellyn, who disagrees with his methods. Winston, this is stupid. You're risking everything. We're in a new country now. Things will not be handed to us like they were in St. Ephraim. But there are easier ways. That is how I do things. If you object to that, there are others who could easily take your place. One of the gang members is about to run over the men with their own van as Superboy arrives. The gang member floors it and jumps out, sending a driverless van toward them. Superboy x-rays a parked Camaro to ensure that it's empty, then blows the van, sending it airborne and crashing into the Camaro, causing them to explode. Later, a detective and Superboy are called over to the burned-out Camaro 
as Winston's dead body is being taken away from it. I checked it. I x-rayed it. There wasn't anyone in that car. Any idea who it is? Only ID we found was this ring. And there's something else. Got an eyewitness here. I'm, I'm not sure I can be any help. Just tell us what you saw. I'm looking out my window and uh, that black guy, he must have been scared because he jumped in the car. And the next thing, Superboy blows that truck right on top of him and, and the whole thing goes up in flames. The guy was screaming something awful. I didn't hear anything. I thought for sure you were going to save him. Look, uh, can I go? We're going to need a written statement. Yeah, okay, sure. Superboy. At the gang's hideout, Llewellyn eulogizes Winston. First of all, let me say that we have been dealt a blow from which we can never fully recover. Yes. Winston was a good man and a close friend. I intend to keep his dream alive. As a leader, however, he was too cautious. A mistake I won't make. We will take all that Capital City holds and more. What is the first step, man? We will build an indestructible army from the streets. I'm sure the Capital City, like San Efren, has its share of opportunists. Yeah, man. But what about Superboy? We didn't have nothing like him and San Efren. Superboy deals in incidents. My interests go beyond petty theft and gang warfare. You have a comment, brother? Yes, indeed. When we left the island, our ranks became meaningless. I could just as easily be leader as you. So what do you propose? We're in America, man. We should vote for our leader. Yeah, we should I don't vote. think these men want to be led by you. Some have said that you are weak, ineffectual. But you, on the other hand, my friend, are strong, right? You are strong and healthy. Most definitely. Then a toast to you. A toast to my strong, healthy opponent. <laughs> at the bureau, Clark shows a lot of the headline about Superboy's involvement in Winston's death. Look at this. No ID on him. Except that ring. They think maybe he was a illegal alien or some homeless person. Or he could have just been with that gang that was trying to rob the Armstrong. It doesn't matter. Somebody died, someone who didn't have to. 
And it was Superboy's fault. No, it wasn't. A crime was being committed, and if it's anyone's fault, it's the criminal's. In fact, that's what the law says. Yeah, that's what it says, all right. Taking this kind of personally. Think how Superboy must feel. Believe me, that's all I've been thinking about. Where are you going? Out. As Superboy looks over the accident scene, he then overhears some of the gang members talking as they load a van with stolen weapons. Superboy goes to stop them, and Llewellyn runs into a stairwell where he holds a woman at gunpoint. The woman begs for Superboy to help her while Llewellyn uses blackmail to keep Superboy at bay. You'll be all right. Put the gun down. Move back. Superboy, please. It could happen again, couldn't it? Another human being could die because of you. Or doesn't that matter now that you tasted blood? Let her go. Nobody needs to get hurt. Well, in that case, I suggest you move back. Because if you don't, something terrible could happen to this lady. Something like this. <laughs> and then that'll be more blood on your hands. Okay. Superboy. <laughs> <laughs> let it go so far. He was gonna shoot me and you were just standing there. What's the matter with you? At the bureau, Superboy catches Lana as he, she's leaving. You scared me. I'm sorry. Lana, I need to talk to you. Of, of course. What about? I don't know if what I'm doing is right anymore. I used to think that I was meant to help people, but lately I, I don't know. Are you saying this because of what happened? Don't blame yourself for that. I killed him. I have to take responsibility. But it was an accident. It won't happen again. I can't take that chance. I came here to say goodbye. Goodbye? If we need you. Not when I'm like this, you don't. I need you. Meanwhile, at the Gorilla Gang's hideout, Llewellyn is, is proposing a merger with the local gang. So that's my proposal. Your organization joins with us to form a single army. With that stronger force, capital city will be brought to its knees. Then my plan will be flawless. So what is this plan of yours, huh? It's not an issue. What I need from you is loyalty. Si, pero what choice have we got? Pardon me? You heard me. If we decide not to join you, what happens to us, eh? You offend me. 
I'm offering you a chance to be part of something big. Take it or leave it. No me diga. I have a hard time believing it's that easy. There's the door. Come on. You stay out of our way. We stay out of yours, ¿me entiende? That seems fair. It's not good to spit in fortune's face. He don't know what he's missing, man. <laughs> Clark arrives home at Smallville and tells his parents that he's giving up using his powers. Later, he and Pa can't see a news report telling of the rising gang violence in Capital City. Over dinner, Clark expresses his frustration with being expected to be everywhere at once to help people and being tired of having to choose who to save. More bad news about Capital City. Certainly seems to be a lot going on down there lately, isn't there? There's a lot going on everywhere. I can't be responsible for everything that happens. That's why you have the police. Hey, son, take it easy, take it easy. I didn't mean to upset you. But people do need you. Everywhere I go, somebody needs me. That's because you are who you are. Who am I? I didn't ask to be like this. And I can't help everybody. That's why I had to turn off the news. I'd turn it on and hear about some people in Canada stuck in an avalanche. Sure, I could fly up there in a few minutes and rescue them. But while I'm doing that, there are some firefighters in the North Sea on an oil rig who are dying in a fire. Or little girls falling down a well. No one expects you to do it all. Don't they? Do you realize what it's like there's so much going on around you all the time and not be able to stop it all. To always have to choose. I don't think I can do it anymore. Back in Capital City, Mayall meets with Llewellyn and says that... You wanted to see me. Well, yeah, but what, what did you want to meet here What for? was it you wanted? I've been thinking, Llewellyn. What a dangerous thing. <laughs> About... More money. I paid you well the first time. Yeah, I know, I know, but uh, I've been figuring out just how much keeping my mouth shut is worth. I mean, what if the uh, what if the police, what if Superboy, found out what really happened that night? As the well sees Hector filling up on gas, detonates the device, killing him in explosion. It would probably be better if Superboy didn't find out.
At the can home, Clark looks into the night, pondering his decision to quit being Superman. All right, this episode is, and the second one as well, is unlike anything this show had done before this or since. I mean, it's dark, it's gritty. I mean, this could be a season one episode of The Adventures of Superman very easily. So it's got really no comic book elements other than Superboy. And it kind of shows that there are other ways to attack him. You can find ways to sow his mind with doubt if you make him think that he killed someone. So let's, uh, you know, start taking this episode apart a little bit. Uh, we have we start with some kind of gang here walking on the tracks there, escorting this train that appears to be hijacked. Uh, with basically the uh, purpose of uh, this slow-moving train is to stop it at the railroad crossing to hijack the truck. And uh, there's another group of men standing up by a wall waiting for the train. And the man with the uh, radio in his hand, that's the gang leader, Winston. The camera zooms in on the uh, ring on his pinky. It should give you a pretty good look at the logo, but the logo's not really relevant. Just the fact that he's wearing a ring is what is. And that's going to come into play in a few minutes. So we're introduced pretty imme- much immediately to uh, the power struggle between Winston and his second-in-command, who isn't named just yet, but this is Llewellyn. And he thinks uh, the plan is uh, too blatant and stupid. And, you know, but Winston isn't, isn't hearing it. This is, uh, you know, he's the leader. Apparently there's some kind of rogue military unit from their former country called San Ephraim, which I'm not sure is a real place. But if you listen to these guys talk, their accents sound heavily Jamaican. And they do make it clear that they're from a Caribbean island somewhere. But apparently uh, the writer of this episode does not want them to be from a real place. I don't know if that's something. uh, I mean, it's possible that uh, the writer of this episode said they were Jamaican and the story editors changed it to something fictional. You know, no way to know, but. But some of the accents we're going to hear are very heavy, very stereotypical Jamaican. So Winston is kind of delegating the uh, running of the oper- the uh, execution of the operation to uh, Llewellyn. And uh, he doesn't want to waste bullets. He's going to run down the these two military truck drivers with the truck. And that's when Superboy shows up to the scene and the gang members are shooting at him. And, you know, in an impressive shot, Superboy blows the runaway truck on top of this car, which we know is empty because Superboy X-rated. And then again with the massive explosion. This car and truck combination ex- had three separate explosions and a big fireball, sparing no expense. So I, I'm guessing that the show must have gotten an uptick with the season three budget because this was stuff they couldn't dream of doing in seasons one and t- season two. So after uh, the break, uh, there's uh, the cops here are here uh, investigating the aftermath of this attack and uh, the cop here says that these guys are soldiers, uh, foreign soldiers, and that's when they find a body in the car and a car that Superboy thought was empty. And we have the idea of a ring. Remember, the ring on Winston's finger. We don't see the ring clearly here as it's in a Ziploc evidence bag, but the only ring we ever paid in, had to pay any attention to in this episode was Winston's. So the leader is dead. And then we have this witness. This is Mr. Mile, who tells the police that he saw a black guy jump Onto the car, and Superboy blew the truck on top of the, of it. The witness says the man screamed, but Superboy didn't hear it. And Superboy is suddenly full of, sep- of self-doubt because of one man's story. And it is not just a story. I mean, here's the thing about lying, or telling a lie of this fashion. In order for it to be effective, 
you have to plant the lie inside the truth. And the truth is that Superboy did blow the truck on top of the car. I mean, maybe even without Winston being in the body. I mean, he did check to see if there was anybody in the car. But maybe he could have blown it somewhere else. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe he didn't need to blow the car, blow the truck onto a parked car. You know, but he asked what he did. So that's kind of what we're stuck with. And we're stuck with the consequences of that action. But it's also the way Mayal tells the story, especially when he starts adding detail, like when he says that he was screaming something awful. Superboy quickly refused. I didn't hear anything. But then right after that is the way Mayal says, I was sure you were going to save him, which is like which is like the final dagger into Superboy's heart. I mean, obviously not a real dagger, a metaphorical one, but that's that's the knife and twisting it on the inside because, you know, that's the the part where you make Superboy feel like you've let someone down by not saving Winston. So, and it's just the way he walks away, confused, doubting himself, the cop there trying to be reassuring. I mean, they're not going to prosecute Superboy for all, for any of this, but Superboy's kind of found himself guilty in his own head. So now the gang is, uh, well, they appear to be mourning the death of Winston, but Llewellyn is really using this opportunity to make a power play, keep the dream alive, and put himself in command. And now he's going to air a couple of his grievances with Winston. Uh, he says Winston was too cautious, and he's going to build an army from the streets. You know, it didn't really seem uh, very cautious, uh, hijacking a train and a truck. I mean, it's almost going to seem like later on that uh, Llewellyn's plan is a little more cautious, uh, using the American approach and uh, buying people off with money. So... Now, you know, as there always is within the power vacuum, there is somewhat of a struggle to lead it. Whatever military unit these guys are a part of, Llewellyn was clearly Winston's second. And one of them is uh, questioning Llewellyn's right to lead. And since they're in America, he wants to vote. You know, we're in America, you know, when in Rome, be democratic. Well, so Llewellyn is going to, you know, pretend to agree. And uh, he poisons his opponent's beer and uh, wins the election by default. So. And Llewellyn just has a sinister smile. Gregory Millard does a great job with this character. I mean, not only is scenery chewing and evil, but he is reveling in his evil. Yeah, it's just a sinister smile as his gang falls into line. So now the Bureau, Clark is uh, ruminating on what happened in the opening and is blaming Superboy. You know, and now, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, here's Lana trying to, you know, she's always the uh, first to uh, defend Superboy. And she even points out that Clark is taking this whole thing kind of personal. Almost like she's trying to say, what the hell is it bothering you so much for? Think of how Superboy must feel. It's going to become a major plot point at some point in this show that Lana is trying to prove that Clark is Superboy. I know it is in the finale, at least. I don't know how far they run with that. Before that, I guess I'll have to see when I go through season four. But I do think there were a few episodes dedicated to... uh, her quest, and one in particular, it's more of a clip show where I don't know the name of it without looking it up. Where, like, she's going through like the last year or so of instances. Oh, where were you when Superboy did this? And uh, you know, which trying to actually find out who Superboy is. I believe it's the seventeenth episode of season four titled "Who Is Superboy." I guess that's uh, pretty obvious, don't you think? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, Lana has got to be the way Clark reacts to Superboy. Sometimes you almost think Lana's got to start putting pieces together soon. So uh, Superboy is trying to search the burned-out car, I guess, maybe for clues or something. And that's when he stumbled upon the gang, uh, stealing uh, from a weapons from a corrupt army officer. Well, not really stealing them from the officer. The officer is assisting them for 
a very large sum of cash. And Superboy tries to and Superboy breaks up the uh, the sale. Very interesting. The Superboy kind of runs after Llewellyn at normal speed, long enough for him to take a hostage, and he plans to drop her. So now uh, Llewellyn is uh, sowing more doubt in Superboy's mind. You know, I don't know if Llewellyn's plan. I mean, part of Llewellyn's plan here is to neutralize Superboy. I mean, that's why he goes through the whole machination with not only does he use the the blowing of the truck on top of the car as a way to kill Winston, but there was Mayala ready and willing to uh, be the witness to f- set Superboy up to think that he killed somebody, and Llewellyn's running with it. And Gregory Millar is great at these monologues, and uh, he's got Superboy mentally on the ropes. And he's afraid that Llewellyn's going to either drop this woman or shoot her, and he's immobilized. He backs up, and Llewellyn drops her anyway, and he catches her, and uh, that you know gives Llewellyn a chance to escape. And the woman slaps Superboy after he catches her, which I have mixed feelings about this. I feel like this is the kind of thing she's doing because of plot. I would think ordinarily she would, she'd at this point be just as happy to have gotten out of there instead of slapping him and asking him what's the matter with him. She really had the best possible outcome that she could have expected. She's alive to tell about it. To have her slap at Superboy and ask what's the matter with him seems ungrateful and... I'm not sure even in his right mind, Superboy could have done anything from where he was. He was too far away to stop a bullet, so the best play might have been to let Llewellyn drop her so he could, he could catch her that way. Because if he shows up behind Llewellyn and surprises him, he probably, Llewellyn either shoots her or drops her. So, like I said, this is probably the best possible outcome for the for the hostage. But And, of course, he's fast enough to go after Llewellyn, too, but you know what? He's going to sit there more with a dumb look on his face, so more doubt. And uh, so here's Lana now hitting the elevator when Superboy shows up, and now he's going to talk to Lana about his doubts, and uh, she is doing everything she can to lift him up, as Lana is wont to do. She reminds him of that it was an accident, which even he has to admit that it was, but he doesn't want to hear it. When he showed up to Lana here, he he had already decided that he's leaving, and this is uh, about to, uh, he's about to say goodbye, and... And he's about to plant uh, the first uh, le- the first kiss on Lana. The only other time I believe they've kissed was in uh, Escape to Earth, which didn't happen. That Lana and Superboy are not with us anymore. But, you know, Lana doesn't want him to leave. But right here, Superboy's broken. In this state, he does not feel confident enough to do his job. And that's the one thing I actually agree with him on. If he can't do his job as Superboy or what he deems his job, he shouldn't do it, and he should leave. And Lana is in tears because I think this is the first time she admits that she needs So Now we move on from that. We're back to the gang, and Llewellyn is uh, consolidating power and uh, trying to recruit other gangs. The recruiting drive is uh, not going well, and uh, Hector here rejects Llewellyn. And uh, they agree, at least for the moment, to steer clear of each other, but you know, Llewellyn doesn't seem to be the type to let that kind of thing go. And we're going to see very shortly that he does not let this thing go. So Clark goes home, rode the bus, elected not to fly, and he got to see the scenery at least. So he uh, shows up, drops the bombshell on his parents that he killed someone. Of course, they already knew. So apparently they already know something of what's going on with, with his powers or in his mind because Pa seems to already know that he's considering making a drastic change because he says that it was an accident and he shouldn't give up his powers because of it. And his parents are concerned, and uh, 
Martha refers to them as his gifts, and she's going to refer to uh, them as that in the ne- the next episode as well. Honestly, now that I think about it, this is probably the best showing Martha Kent gets in this ep- in this series at this point. You know, up until now, she's been pretty much the happy homemaker, but uh, you're going to see in part two that she's just as important to, e- even more important to his recovery than Pius. So, he... Uh, just needed to come home and think, and if you're going to think, home is the place to do it. And, of course, Mom and Pa can't welcome it. So, Clark and uh, Jonathan are watching the news and about the gang war in Capital City, and Clark shuts it off. You know, he just, he can't right now. You know, he came here to get away, not to watch it on, on TV, because it frustrates him. And we're going to find out the core of his frustrations in a minute, as uh, we're having uh, Ma's uh, fried chicken. And it just seems like Clark is worn out from being Superboy. I mean, and he's overwhelmed by all the things he can do and what he perceives people as expecting him to do. Remember, Clark is still young, you know, early 20s at the oldest. So he is still at a point where he's very much finding his way in the world, trying to figure out how to be Superboy and be Clark Kent at the same time. And he's bothered by having to choose who he saves and who he doesn't. It's a conundrum to be sure. He hasn't gotten to the point yet of, of accepting what he can do and allowing that to be enough. I mean, because he gives several examples. Yeah. I turn on the news. There's some pe- and he explains why he turned off the news. Yeah. I can save those people in, in the Canadian avalanche. But then there's this. And then there's that. There's a little girl falling down a well over here. There's a rock slide there. Firefighters there. And he is overwhelmed by the fact that he feels like people expect him to do it all. Maybe some do. Maybe those smart enough to know better don't. But it doesn't matter at this point what people actually expect of him. He's burdened by what he feels other people expect of him. Like I said, he hasn't learned yet to accept what he can do and allowing it to be enough. And and the death of Winston by what he thinks is his hand has brought that all up to the surface. And so now we go back to Capital City and more my Al, he wants more money. Apparently, he got paid very well the first time, and but he's getting greedy, and he tries to bilk some more money out of Llewellyn by saying, you know, what if Superboy found out what happened that night? And uh, Llewellyn had them meet in a very specific place for a very specific reason. They're at a gas station with the uh, rival gang and uh, Hector, and he, uh, I just love the way he executes this. Gregor, you know, what if Superboy finds, Miles says, what if Superboy finds out? And right after he blows up Hector and the gang, he kind of points out that it would probably be better if Superboy didn't find out. And the synopsis says he was paid here. I don't think so. I don't think Llewellyn is giving him any more money, at least right now. Because right now, he by all clearly spent all the money that he had, that he got from setting up Superboy. And right now, he blew up this gang in front of my off for a very specific reason. I did this to them. I could do this to you. So, you know. Don't come around here no more, no more asking for money. So the synopsis says that Mayall got paid. I don't think he did. So like I said, very different episode than uh, anything we've seen before on this show. While this series has a lot of comic book elements, this is the first time we really got down in the streets. Definitely the darkest two episodes of this series. That's probably why this two-parter stands out so well among all the 100 of the show's episodes. So now at this point, I'm going to take a break, play a podcast promo. I come back. Rebirth, part two. Hang around, folks. And action! It's Fade Out, 
hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. All right, welcome back, folks. Gonna finish this off with, you guessed it, Rebirth Part 2, Episode 18 of Season 3. Original broadcast date was February 16th, 1991. The uh, same directing and writing team, directed by Richard Lewis and written by Paul Diamond. Most of the same guest cast. Stuart Whitman as Jonathan Kent. Salome Jens as Martha Kent. Gregory Millar as Llewellyn. Kevin Benton as Desmond. Michael Owens as Mile. And Roger Preto as... Majorat. Um, probably, I probably butchered that. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. While Clark enjoys a country sunrise in Smallville, Lana finds out that Mayal purchased some higher dollar items, despite his meager salary. Okay, I'll try back later. Thanks, Mrs. Kent. Jackson's gonna kill you when he sees the long distance bill. Look at what I got. I've been checking that witness mail, the one who says he saw Superboy kill that guy. After the accident, the guy has bought a car, a Rolex, an apartment at Holbert Towers. So? Someone's living his dream life and paying cash. The guy makes 18000 a year. There's something wrong. All right, it's a little suspicious. Tell the cops. Not until I get some more answers. At the Kent home, Clark is planning a regular day as plain old Clark as they all have breakfast. At his hideout, Llewellyn talks to a buyer named Majorat. <laughs> Playing with toys, as usual. Yes, but my toys are getting bigger. How are you doing, my friend? I was saddened, but not surprised to hear of Winston's death. It's a tragedy. What do you have, Llewellyn? And it better be worth 4,000 miles. What I have is a plan. We dug in here, taking root and growing. But now I want to expand and break into the world market. Is that why you called me? To offer me a supply of M76s I can't get anywhere. What about wet ice shells? Binary chemical weapons? Fresh out of Eastern Europe and in transit now to a disposal site in the South Pacific. Interesting. And I suppose they're lying around in America everywhere these days. No. But they are arriving tonight at a local military repository. Repositories have guards. I have an army. They also have big doors with their respective big locks. At the Ken Farm, Martha talks with Jonathan while Clark digs the trench. <laughs> oh, thanks, Mom. I forgot what it was like having him around. He's turned into quite a man. Yes, he has. But he doesn't belong here, Jonathan. What do you mean? Can't you feel it? The part that's been missing is back. 
I haven't been this happy in ages. But is he... Takes a lot longer this way. Nothing wrong with a little honest work. <laughs> Nothing wrong with using your God-given gifts, either. Except when someone dies because of them. Son, I don't mean to push. But sometimes it's not black and white. I remember the first time I saw you as Superboy. I wanted to feel proud, but all I felt was cold, numb. It reminded me of the time that Jonathan went off to the war. I didn't want him to go, mostly because I knew that he could be killed or hurt, but also because he might hurt or kill other people. I didn't know I could love a man who had done such things. It took time. But then I saw that sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes we don't. I have a choice. Yes, I know. And I'll be proud of you no matter what choice you make. Then Jonathan's arm gets caught in a drill bit. And Clark has no choice but to use his powers to save him. Later, Clark overhears a radio report that gang violence has continued to run rampant since he left Capital City. He tells the Kansas he's going back. I'm going back. We were just getting used to having you here. And I was getting used to being back. But for the wrong reasons. I'm still not sure how I fit in, but... Uh... I think this afternoon proved that no matter where I go, I can't hide from who I am. Sounds to me like you've been doing some thinking. I guess I have the two of you to blame for that. We just told you how we felt. You did your own thinking. Whoever sent me here sure knew what they were doing. Can I give you a lift to the bus station? Not this time. I'll get my things. At the gang's hideout, my all comes for a visit to try to blackmail more money out of Llewellyn. Llewellyn, he insisted on seeing you, man. That doesn't surprise me. When you're not used to it, money goes very quickly, doesn't it? Exactly, and I knew you'd understand. I hate to seem greedy, but... Uh, but you are. I understand perfectly. Look, uh, all I want is a, a few thousand more. I mean, that's not much for guys like you. Don't worry. You'll get your due tonight. This man will deliver it himself. Remember, anything happens, uh, my lawyer's got everything on how I frame Superboy for you. All of it. Find his home, and when you do, kill him. Then join us at the site. What about then kill his lawyer? At the bureau, Clark returns and expecting to see Lana, but Matt remembers her talking about confronting Mayala at his apartment. Matt leaves and has Clark call the police. At Mayala's apartment, Lana sneaks in while he's being tied up by one of Llewellyn's men, Desmond. She goes into a closet and starts a tape recorder. Desmond sets a bomb in Mayala's lap when he hears Lana drop a tape recorder inside the closet. He finds her and ties her up as well. Clark arrives outside the apartment and listens to the conversation inside. Again, did Superboy kill Winston? The bomb first. No, man. Truth first. Then perhaps the bomb. How did Winston die? 
Okay. Okay. When everything started coming down that night, the older guy, Winston, he tried to get away. Llewellyn was waiting for him. The, the truck had already crashed and it was burning. And Llewellyn hit Winston with a, with a brick or something, chucked him into the car and let him fry. Superboy didn't know squat what was happening. Look, I told you you waxed your boss. Hey, hey, where are you going? I'm leaving, of course. What about the bomb? Oh, you can keep it. Wait out there. It's a bomb. Looks that way. But aren't you gonna take it? Did Llewellyn really kill Winston? Yes! Once he does, Superboy grabs the bomb and shields it just before it explodes. Since Llewellyn double-crossed him, Mayall tells Superboy about the breaking of the military depository, and Superboy goes, leaving Lana to watch Mayall. He makes a suggested proposition to Lana if she unties him, but she punches him out. At the depository, Llewellyn and his small army move through the gate while Majorat watches a short distance away. A gunfight ensues as they forge ahead. When they reach the entrance to the building, they fire a missile to gain entry. When the smoke clears, Superboy stands there. He punches men out as they try to attack him, then apprehends Llewellyn. All the men, including Majorat, are rounded up and apprehended. Llewellyn comes over and threatens to exploit Superboy's weakness for saving others when he gets out of prison. Well done. How many of my men did you kill this time? That won't work anymore. But it still doesn't change the weakness you showed me. Because you are weak. Your justice is weak. When I get out, and I will get out, I'll take advantage of your humanity. As he's being taken away, Desmond walks out from behind a parked truck and shoots him avenging Winston's murder. Superboy goes back to my old apartment where things are being wrapped up. Apparently they were from San Efren and they were running arms. I'm back. And I'm gonna stay. Alright, so this episode clearly wraps up the Rebirth story. I don't want to say Superboy is redeemed because he didn't do anything that needs redeeming, but the first half of this episode is about the escalating gang war juxtaposed with Clark continuing to have his doubts about his mission as Superboy and his recovery. So here's Clark uh, checking out a sunrise on the Kent farm, just kind of enjoying the fresh air and the open spaces. And here is one of the problems with this two-parter. I mentioned there's a little bit of a problem with the pacing. And it's not clear how long he's here on the farm. Eventually, the radio will refer to Superboy's disappearance. So it's got to be at least some time. I mean, Superboy's not going to just disappear for a day. And it takes Lana, 
who we first see at the bureau on the phone investigating the witness. It takes some time to do that. And this is, you know, I've been referring to him as Mayal in the part one, but this is where we finally find out that his name is Mayal. So, and apparently he's bought a car and a Rolex and a swanky apartment, yet he only makes $18,000 per year in 1991 money, which translates to about 34.4000 today. Still not a lot of money, well below the median. So again, all this stuff takes time. You don't just buy a car, a Rolex, and a swanky apartment in, you know, 25 minutes. So I'm going to guess if I need to. And especially some of the stuff Llewellyn is up to, this stuff takes time. So I'm going to guess that Clark is in Smallville, you know, for at least a week, maybe two. And uh, so like I said, Lana is uh, investigating my all with his meager salary. It's easy to see why he went for the deal with Llewellyn. And Lana is using Bureau Resources to do this investigation, which... This is really not in the Bureau's purview. If she were Lois Lane and this were in the Daily Planet, this would be perfectly fine. But this is kind of where you run into a little bit of a problem with the Bureau. The stories that this show tells kind of has to fit into the concept of the Bureau for extra normal matters. You know, that's how you see things like the alien rock from Mindscape or, you know, they would probably look into Bizarro and other stuff like that. They're not an enforce a law enforcement agency. They're not the the press. So the bureau really has no role in this. And here is Lana using bureau resources to do this. And even Matt Sestor, fine, call the cops. So I mean, you can see why uh, Lana is involved in this. She is uh, she's trying to clear Superboy, and uh, you know I don't know how the contracts for this show worked out, but just because somebody is in the opening credits. There are actors who sometimes their deal is for maybe like three quarters of the episodes or or 12 or 15. One of the things that I've listened to some commentaries about Michael J. Michael Straczynski when he wrote Babylon 5, one of the things he had to pay attention to uh, when he wrote was how many episodes he had certain actors for because, you know, he didn't want to waste an appearance if he didn't have to. Even if actors were in the opening credits, they weren't in every episode. And maybe Robert Levine and... Uh, Peter J. Fernandez are contracted to be in less episodes. Probably only Gerard Christopher and Stacey Heideck were contracted for every episode. Or they get assigned a contract for every episode, and if they're not used, they still get paid. I don't, know, I don't know how contracts work, but Peter J. Fernandez makes a brief appearance here. We don't see Jackson at all. So back at uh, Smallville, Clark just wants to be a plain old Clark. He doesn't want to because Pa suggested they dig a well, and Clark asked about the drill bit, which is the drill bit, which is still broken, but. Paul kind of expects that Clark is just going to drill the well for him. And no, he's not. <laughs> he wants to do it the old-fashioned way, or rather the human way. So and it, this is the moment where Ma complains about what Paul would do if he was bored. And that's kind of the first time I've seen the trace of the uh, the founder character that Salome Jens will eventually play on Deep Space Nine. But she talked a little bit more forcefully, I heard it. And I think Clark is also avoiding Lana's calls. Apparently, it's not unknown where Clark is. We're going to find out a little bit later that... It is common knowledge to everybody that he went home. Apparently, there's a cover story about Pa's back. So I'm guessing Lana was calling to uh, tell him about uh, Mayal, but he just said he'll call her later. So now uh, Llewellyn is shooting up a bar, because he can. So And now he's making a play for chemical weapons and plans to break into uh, the military depository. And I really like this exchange between Llewellyn and uh, Masharad. The whole repositories have guards. He has an army. The doors and the big locks. And I just love the grin 
when Llewellyn holds the bazooka and says, I have a key. <laughs> like I said, the actor who plays Llewellyn, Gregory Millar, it's a great performance, a scenery showing performance, but you know what? That it's good to see the actors having fun in their work, in their roles. So back at Smallville, Pa is happy Clark's back, but you know, Ma's got that mother's intuition. She knows Clark isn't happy, and she doesn't know if he's throwing himself into being normal as a way to escape from his feelings or or what. But uh Clark is still deflecting. Uh she makes a comment to him about I mean something about how about Maybe it's uh, going a little slower than than he's used to, but makes a comment about honest work. But you know, Ma's not gonna push. She's gonna always so much emphasis on Pa Kent. You know, you saw it in Superman the movie. You saw it a lot in Smallville. A lot of focus on Clark's fathers. But this here is a great moment for Ma Kent, and she talks about. And this isn't something that can come from Pa Kent either. She talks about the first time that she saw him as Superboy, feeling cold and numb because she's afraid for him, and. She compares it to when Jonathan went off to war. I believe this version of Jonathan was in Vietnam. The comics version of Jonathan was in Korea. And I think this was kind of the first time I really thought about the idea of Jonathan Kent having been drafted before and gone you know, to fight in war. I mean, obviously it had been referenced in season one, especially Phantom of the Third Division, but I hadn't seen that episode. Season three was the first season I saw as a kid. I didn't see seasons one and two until I did this podcast. So that was really my first exposure to the idea of Jonathan Kent fighting in uh, one of the major wars this country fought. And I believe in the case of this show, it's Vietnam. And it would make sense of the Pa Kent uh, of this time in the comics having fought in, in Korea because that Clark is, is Superman in his mid-30s and 20 years older, almost, than this version of Clark. But she was afraid that Jonathan could be killed, obviously, or that he might do the same to others. And... Didn't know if she could love somebody who did those things. And she learned that, you know, you don't always have a choice in these things. And again, she's not going to push. She's just going to lay this wisdom on her, the benefit of her experience. But, you know, Clark pushes back. He's still pushing back. He uh, he says he has a choice, which, of course, he does. And again, like I said, she's not going to push. She just acknowledges what he says, shows him love and support, and she's going to make sure... That the decision is his. I mean, there was a, there's a lot in the Silver Age Superboy comics where the Kent are talking about when he becomes Superman since the cradle, you know, and that they're kind of pushing him in this direction. I much prefer this more modern interpretation where they're letting him make the decision on what he wants to do. Of course, life is going to come out pretty fast in a minute because Clark won't punch a well himself. Pa is fixing the drill bit and his sleeve gets caught in it. And he calls for Clark, and Clark's making his choice. At least it seems as though he is. He's, he's going to run over to help, but he's still running at normal speed, not using his super speed to uh, save his father, much the way in part one he didn't use any super speed to go after Llewellyn. So at first he tries the normal way of saving Pa by turning it off, but he sees it's not going to work, and this is the point where he gives in and grabs the drill bit with his hands and stops it with his super strength. And you could see the look on Clark's face. And then the line from his mother, thank God you were here. Of course, I wonder if uh, this would have happened if Clark wasn't here because this whole bit with the drill bit started because Clark wasn't going to drill the well for him. Without Clark there to refuse to drill the well, would Pa have been fixing the drill bit today? So no way to know. But the point is, 
Paul was fixing the drill bit, and Clark saved him. And you can see the look on Clark's face. The wheel is starting to turn his mind a little bit. This little incident has definitely got him reconsidering. And then he hears the radio in his room. He finally turns the news back on, and he hears about the gang war rising capital city since Superboy disappeared. So, just from the looking on Christopher's face and in his eyes, you can see the wheels turning in Clark's head. And I think this is probably Gerard Christopher's best performance in the series, and definitely the meatiest script that he's gotten. So, he decides, he finds him on the, on the porch and tells him he's going back. And the incident earlier with the drill bit and talking to Ma has proved to him that he can't hide from who he is anymore. He wasn't going to let Pa die because he doesn't want to use his powers, and he's not going to let anybody else die for the same reason. Maybe he's at a point where he can accept that what he does is enough, but for this point of this episode, it's going to become uh, more about proving that he didn't kill Winston. So, anyway, back in Capital City, Miles still wants more money, and this time he tried to take out some insurance by leaving information with his lawyer on how he framed Superboy for uh, Llewellyn and the gang. So he clearly wasn't deterred enough by the car bombing that now he's going to get his lawyer killed. Hopefully he didn't tell them who his lawyer was and that uh, the lawyer could do what needs to be done before Llewellyn and, the, and his gang tracks him down. So Clark returned to the Bureau. And like I mentioned before, the excuse for why he went home was that his father had a back injury. Clark must have forgotten what his excuse was because it took him a minute to catch on and the recovery was pretty funny. So Lana was going to uh, confront Mayal and uh, Matt goes after her, leaving uh, Clark to call 911, which is busy because of all the violence. Lana, meanwhile, is in her tight jeans and a low-cut white shirt, dressed awful sexy to confront the witness. Maybe I'm looking too far into that. Lana is, you know, a young woman in her early 20s. She's uh, going to flaunt what she's got. And uh, she walks into this unlocked apartment and sees Mayal being either tied or taped to a chair. And uh, she uh, ducks into a closet to uh, record everything she hears. And uh, Desmond is about to uh, kill Mayal. Now, the uh, synopsis said that she dropped the tape recorder. I thought she just stopped it. But either way, the uh, the click gets caught by Desmond, who is questioning Mayal about Winston's death, and he wants the truth. Well, Winston tried to get away, but Llewellyn hit him with a brick or something and uh, let him burn in the car. So now Desmond got his truth. Well, he's still going to blow them up, but he's got his truth, so he's going to take care of business on his end. So now Superboy knows the truth, and he bursts through the doors in a great shot. Those double doors fall right to the side in beautiful shot. And I like how Superboy makes up my all sweat after he frees Lana. Yeah, bomb here, yeah, looks like it. And then he, uh, like I said, like the officer says, he asked him again if Llewellyn really killed Winston. And he's like, yeah, get me out of here. And then he, I mean, he told Desmond the truth because he thought it would save his life. At this point, he has no reason to lie. Although I wonder, what would Superboy have done if uh, Mayal recanted his story? Not that in this situation he has any reason to. But then Superboy eventually takes the bomb, and I just love this shot of how it explodes in front of Superboy and the glass shatter. Just beautiful, uh, well-done shot. And, you know, Superboy's not going to take any chances with Mayal. Leaves him tied up, and he's going after he gets the information about Llewellyn hitting the depository. And uh, Mayal's method is to hit on Lana to get her to free him. And all that really gets him is punched in the face. So now we're at the uh, depository for our climax. Lots of guns and lots of shooting. Pro good action here, I'll say that. And I like this shot of when they fire the rocket launcher at the repository and then... After the explosion, Superboy is there at the door. For the record, Llewellyn's key did not open the, repos the depository. I'm guessing the rocket bounced off Superboy and exploded on him. And I just love how the smoke clears. And Superboy is standing there, hands on hips, and uh, 
he's going to go all George Reed on these guys and start clocking people left and right. Like I said, this is the most season one George Reed Superman that Gerard Christmas version of the character ever gets. So, as Llewellyn is arrested, Llewellyn taunts Superboy about his weakness and his humanity. And again, Gregory Millar, despite the grittiness of this story, does take the opportunity to ham it up when he monologues, and it's great. And uh, he warns Superboy about what will happen when he gets out, except Llewellyn's not getting out, as he's not even getting in. <laughs> Desmond all of a sudden walks on and says, and doles out some uh, gangland justice and shoots Llewellyn dead right in front of everybody. So um, I guess Desmond was a Winston loyalist. So Superboy is uh, back to stay, and he and Lana share their first kiss. That's not going to be uh, retconned out of uh, continuity by time travel or any other plot device that you could think of. So this was a good two-parter, like I said, right up there with Road's Not Taken, 1A. Road's Not Taken, number one, this is 1A. But where this does suffer is in that it's, is in its length. It's too short. This could easily have been a, especially with a half-hour show, this could easily have been a three- or four-parter, but TV wasn't doing things like that back then. Just Superboy doesn't seem like he's gone for all that long. Maybe some time passes between parts one and two, but he was gone for however long it took for Llewellyn to do everything that he did and for Lana to do everything that she did and my all. So despite that, it's still an enjoyable story. The only time he really just deconstruct this character and Gerard plays it well. And uh, you can de- you can deconstruct this character. You know, I know, it's, you know, one of the complaints about especially Batman v Superman was how much it deconstructed Superman because the problem when you do it in a movie to the extent that Zack Snyder did, you know, that's all you're getting for a couple of years. We've broken down Superboy and put it back together in these two episodes, but then we're right back to superheroics next week. So you can do that on TV probably better than you could in a movie, which is why I like these characters on TV better, especially now with the way uh, episodes have become more, a little more linked. Not, maybe not necessarily serialized, but there are ongoing story arcs and character development you really don't see in shows like this that were made in the early 90s. And Mom and Pa are used to their best effect here. And while Llewellyn is a little over the top and a Jamaican stereotype, despite being from a fictional island, he's probably just one of the scariest villains Superboy has faced. But even the climax is too quick, but the show ran out of time and probably money too. These look like they could have been expensive episodes to make. But still, I love it. Again, when I started covering uh, Superboy, there were a few episodes that were circled for me. Rose Not Taken was one. This, this one definitely is. The, the finale of, of season three, Road to Hell, and definitely the series finale, Right to Pass the Draw, you know, top episode that I had, had circled. And I can't wait to get to those. But until then, next time, uh, Werewolf and the People vs. Metallo, which will see the return of Michael Callan. So until then, feedback is always welcome. Man of Screen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show ships them up. Let's find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team tonight. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. 
and you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. <laughs>